Build days were like the most dreaded days. Build days were, were necessary days, but build days were not exciting days. Build days could be very discouraging. There were some times when build days could be very encouraging, but, but sometimes build days would be very discouraging. A build day is what Schwanz calls uh, when you go out and you look for new customers. They give you a truck full of product and you just go out to your route area and all you do is just visit new customers or desire new customers. You go to cold doors, uh, people that you don't know, people that you don't normally stop at, maybe someone who used to be on the route who's no longer on the route, and you just spend the whole day just going and, and doing cold calling. Uh, for me, it was not an exciting thing to do. I don't do very well with strangers sometimes. Uh, and so it was a difficult thing for me to do. But if I could go to a couple of three or five doors and I could get a sale, if I could get a new customer within that five stops, man, I'm good to go for the whole day. Uh, I, there would just be enough, enough encouragement in that one that I could just keep going. Uh, each new customer would be worth 10 bucks. And then any, any products that they bought, you would get commission off of that. So if you could get 10 new customers in a day, you were doing pretty well. And so that was, that was the mindset that I had. And, and then as you think about adding 10 new customers to your route, and you're already making 100 stops, that's a, that's a pretty good day. And so that was the purpose, that was the goal. And it could be very discouraging if you didn't find anybody, but yet very encouraging and very motivating if you did find a few. This morning we're continuing our journey through 2 Corinthians and we're making our way verse by verse through 2 Corinthians and this morning we arrive at the edge of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to consider these first six verses this morning and, and look at these first six verses. And as we look at these first six verses, Paul shares with them that he's not losing hearts that he is not being discouraged in everything that's going on. And as we look at this, and as we think about what Paul shares here, I think there's a good reminder in this for us that we shouldn't become discouraged. And so uh, this instruction that he's given us here, uh, as we look at this and we apply this to our own lives, hopefully we get the idea that don't lose heart is something that's important for us as well. And so this is what we want to look at this morning. And as we dive into this, there's going to be three headings that we're going to use to kind of lead us through this. The first thing we see is Paul's drive. We see the reason that Paul didn't lose heart. Verses 2 through 4, we see the detractors. We see some of those who are seeking and, and trying to discourage Paul. And the third thing we see is in verses 5 through 6, and we do see Paul's desire. And it's Paul's desire, his overflowing desire, that just helps him not to lose heart. And that desire should be our desire as well. If you don't have your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 4 yet, I invite you to turn there. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. And this says in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
And even our gospel, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that your word this morning would look into us. Uh, open our hearts to what you have for us, Lord, that we may drink it in and that we may drink it in abundantly. And I pray, Lord, that as we gather here this morning, that we wouldn't leave thirsty, that our thirst would be satisfied this morning as we gather around your word. So just give me the words to say, the thoughts to think. Lord, touch my heart and my mind, Lord, and just help me to proclaim your word in a clear way this morning that we can understand it. Lord, grateful for who you are. So, so very grateful for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, the first thing we want to look at this morning is Paul's drive. Look at verse 1. It starts with the word, therefore. Now, as we think about the word, therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore? If we just parachuted right in and we just saw the therefore, we wouldn't know what it meant. But as we've been looking at it, we've seen that Paul thus far has been defending uh, his ministry. That's what he's been defending. He's been defending uh, his apostleship. His apostleship was under fire. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 1.1, he said this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Uh, it was not Paul's will to be an apostle. He didn't wake up one morning and say, hey, I think today's a good day to be an apostle. God called him to be an apostle. That apostleship was under question. He was under fire as a result of that. But he knew that he was an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ and according to the will of God. Uh, and we've been looking at chapter 3. We saw how Paul was a messenger, that his ministry was regarding the new covenant. And as a new covenant uh, proclaimer of the new covenant, that's what he was doing. Uh, this was in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So this has been Paul's defense all along. Everything is due to God. The message we're proclaiming is from God. My position as an apostle is from God. And so that's been his point all along. And so he says, therefore, because of those things, because of what I've just said, because of what I've just shared, this is what I want you to hear, okay? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, Paul realized that his ministry was a ministry that had been given to him from God. It was a ministry that was given to him, and his ministry was to be proclaiming the new covenant. That wasn't very appealing to the Judaizers, but that was what his ministry was, was proclamation of the new covenant. It was the ministry of the Spirit. It was a ministry of righteousness. That's what he was called to do. That's what he was called to proclaim. This is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. It says, If the ministry of death 
carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Paul says, under the Old Testament, it was a ministry of death, but my ministry now in this new covenant is a ministry of life. It's a ministry of righteousness. And that's what he was proclaiming, this particular ministry. And Paul realizes this ministry is from God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Think about that for a moment. Paul was a blasphemer. He was seeking to snuff out the gospel. He was doing everything within his power to keep the old covenant in the, in the limelight. He wanted to keep the old covenant in glory. That's what he wanted to keep doing. And the new covenant, it was, it was being introduced. He didn't like it. He didn't like that change. He didn't want that. He did everything he could do to snuff out uh, the, the gospel in Jerusalem. He even got permission to go to Damascus. And remember, it was on the way to Damascus that he met Jesus Christ face to face. And Christ said, why do you persecute me, Saul? And then Saul went to Damascus blind. And God came and spoke uh, to Ananias. And he told Ananias to take this message to Saul. The Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. How could Saul go from being a persecutor of the church to being a proclaimer of the new covenant? Only by God. Only by the mercy of God. There was nothing that Paul did to deserve this. There was nothing that Paul did to, to earn this. He did not deserve this ministry. But God gave him this ministry. And he says, it's only by the mercy of God. There's, there's no other explanation. It's only by the mercy of God. Now notice the next thing that he says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose hearts. We do not lose heart. Paul had plenty of reasons to lose heart. At any time, Paul could have quit the ministry, walked away, and people would have said, you know what, I understand, Paul. It has been so rough on you. I understand why you would walk away. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but what that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. You see, Paul was in that spot where he was frightened for his death. He was burdened beyond his own strength. He thought he could die at any time. Great opportunity to lose heart. A great opportunity to say, I give up. This isn't worth it. I don't want this. And you know, outsiders would look at him and psychiatrists and psychologists would say, yeah, it's time you leave. But Paul did not lose heart. Paul did not lose heart. God delivered him from that deadly. And he knew that God would deliver him again. 
And he said, we don't lose heart. Corinth was a tough place to minister. It wasn't like he was ministering to the lost on the beaches of Hawaii. You know, where it's just uh, penny coladas all day and by the beach, sitting in a hammock, uh, just enjoying the surf. And as people come by, hand out a track. Uh, that was not his ministry. Corinth was a tough place to minister. He said this in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 2. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. It was not easy, but Paul was there because God had called him there. God was there, or Paul was there because God had put a love in his heart, and he continued to proclaim the message of God, even in spite of all of these savage attacks, in spite of all of these false accusations that were coming his way, uh, questioning the legitimacy of his apostleship, uh, questioning his authority, uh, all of those things that would crush him, that could crush him, in the midst of that, he says, we don't lose heart. Paul refused to surrender. That old saying, surrender is not in our creed. That was Paul. Uh, he didn't lose heart. Uh, this word for did not lose heart, it's a double negative. It's a double negative. So it says, we would absolutely not uh, lose heart. Absolutely not. You know, there's that, a strong thought when we put the absolutely there. I absolutely would not lose heart. That was where Paul was at. There was no time to lose heart. There was no time to surrender. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says this, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says there's no other opportunity, and woe to me if I were to choose to give up. Woe to me if I were to choose to lose heart. So that's Paul's drive. That's what drove Paul, was thinking about this ministry that had been given to him, thinking about way, the way that God had redeemed him, uh, thinking about God putting him in this place to go and minister to the Gentiles. That was his burden. That was his heart. That's what kept the fire in the boiler, so to speak, because God had called him to this. Now, notice the detractors that are there. Verse 2 begins with the word, but... It's kind of an interesting conjunction as you think about this uh, because we've just read all of this stuff about Paul's drive and about his ministry, but then we see this word, but. There's this ministry that, that God has given to Paul. Uh, verse by verse, he's been speaking about uh, this ministry that's been given to him by God, and he's all about that ministry of glory. I mean, that's been his drive. That's been his focus. And then there's but. You know, you're kind of waiting for that Hawaiian wave to come in, and you just want to keep riding it. And this would be a good time to ride that wave, but there's something else. Notice what it says. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Paul is renouncing these practices. Now, these practices were practices that he was not willing to use in his own ministry. Uh, these may have been practices that he was being accused of using. Uh, these were probably practices that, that the false teachers were using. 
But Paul says, we refuse, we, we reject the thought of using these practices. When these practices come into our ministry meetings, we say, absolutely not. We're not going to do those. We're not going to use this. He says, we renounce disgraceful ways. Paul sought to be holy. That was his desire. He desired to walk as closely to Christ as he possibly could in obedience. Uh, his ministry was such that, that people could look at his ministry and say, you know, there's nothing corrupt in your ministry. Paul says, follow Christ as, follow me as I follow Christ. That's, that's where he wanted them to be, was closer to Christ. And so he said, there's nothing, there's no disgraceful ways. There's no hidden agenda here. He renounced underhanded ways. Uh, the New Living Translation says underhanded methods. Paul did not use questionable methods to reach people with the gospel. Sometimes there can be that temptation to use questionable methods to bring people to Christ. If we're, we're worried about how full our churches are, we're worried about the number of people that are there, we can use questionable messages. Paul was not concerned about that. He didn't use a questionable method. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 28. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We don't, we don't seek to, to tickle the ears of either one of those groups. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. So if we are using a method to try to bring Jews in, hey, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. There are going to be a lot of Jews that are going to reject the Messiah. If it's only the Jews we're interested in, we don't want to preach Christ. Gentiles, uh, they think it's folly. Why would anybody need Christ? Paul's not worried about them. He wants to see people come to know Christ. He wants to see their lives transformed. That's what his... That's what his concern is about. There's going to be some who stumble over it. There's going to be some who reject it. But that's his desire. Uh, and so he said, we refuse those, we, we refuse that, those underhanded methods. Now, the next thing we see is that Paul refused practices uh, of cunning, clever ways. Paul was not a snake oil salesman. He, he was not trying to, to get rich quick. He was not trying to trick people or manipulate people into trusting Christ. This is first Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. He says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. It was all about Jesus Christ for the Apostle Paul. That was his mindset. That's what he proclaimed. And then notice the last part of this. He says, we refuse to tamper with God's word. We refuse to tamper with God's word. He sought to proclaim the truth of God's word. He didn't water down the message of God's word. He didn't change the message of God's word. He did not sugarcoat it to make it more appealing. He proclaimed the word of God. He didn't change the message to match the audience. He proclaimed the word of God and the word of God alone. And he sought to do it accurately. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this, I decided to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was Paul's desire, to give him the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. That was what Paul's desire was to do. Now, notice verse 2. But, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, Paul sought not to be offensive. Now, when we hear that, Paul seeking to not be offensive, what do you mean? Paul did not compromise the gospel. All right? So the gospel is going to offend. That's the way the gospel does. Because the gospel calls for us to repent from our sinful ways and turn to Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel says. The gospel doesn't say, go ahead and keep living your life as you want to live it, and then here's Jesus to add with it. The gospel says, turn from your sins, repent from your sins, and turn to Christ. And that is offensive to people. It's going to be offensive because it says, turn from your sin. But I enjoy my sin. I don't want to turn from my sin. But the gospel says, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. So in that regard, the gospel is offensive. And in that regard, Paul proclaimed the gospel. He offended the Jews. He offended the Gentiles. That's what it was. But in regards to the things of culture, the hang-ups and the personal preferences that were in the culture, Paul did not seek to offend them in those areas. Paul did not want to discourage them from following Christ because of his own preferences. Uh, one time I had somebody come to me, and uh, there was a presidential race that was running, going on, and it was pretty. It was a pretty heated presidential race, uh, and there was uh, one person. Uh, his last name was uh, uh, starts with T. Trump. Trump. Uh, and there was another another person running, and it was uh, Biden. It was it was his name. This has been a, an election or two ago, and uh, so someone was watching us online, and they said, "Boy, when you preach, I don't know who you are in support of." And I said, praise the Lord, because I'm not a political figure. My desire is for people to turn and follow Jesus Christ. I mean, who you voted for is not going to keep you out of heaven or keep you out of hell. What you've done with Jesus Christ is what's going to do that. So if I come in and I'm a, I'm, and I'm a Biden supporter, if I come in and I'm a Trump supporter, it's very easy to offend the other group because politicalness does divide us, right? But if I come in and I and don't proclaim either one of those things, but I proclaim Jesus, I'm not offending those who are in either one of those camps, but instead they're looking to Jesus. They're looking to Jesus. And so that's what I want to do is make sure they look to Jesus. And that was what Paul desired is not to offend him in those areas that mean nothing, but to make sure they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the door wasn't shut before he had a chance. Sometimes we proclaim the gospel and the door gets shut. That's okay. But we don't want that door shut before we get there. We want the door open before we get there. And that was Paul's desire uh, as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8, we talked about this in Sunday school. It says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. 1 Corinthians 8, 13, Paul says this, Therefore, if food 
makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul is saying, you know what, if there's those things that are going to hinder people from coming to Christ, I will give up meat. I will give up meat so that I don't lead them away from Christ. I'm willing to do that. Now think about that. That's kind of tough, isn't it? But if I'm going to lead people astray by those things, hey, I don't want those things. I want them to know Jesus. That was Paul's heart. That was his mindset. In the sight of God, uh, he knew that his ministry was seen by God. He knew that his ministry was to proclaim the new covenant so that people would turn to Christ. And that's what he did. That's what he did. Now look at verse 3 here. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Paul shared with us in the last part of chapter 3 there about the veil. And Paul knows that as he proclaims the gospel, there are going to be some that as he proclaims the gospel, it's veiled to them. They don't understand. For some of you that came to know Christ later in life, you didn't turn to Christ the first time you heard the gospel. It was nonsense to you. But then the light began to go on. The veil began to be lifted. And then the lights went on when the veil dropped, when the veil disappeared. And you realized your need for Christ. Paul says some of them are going to be veiled. We share the gospel with them, and some are just going to reject the gospel. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14, Paul said this, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Paul lived a period of his life under that veil, rejecting Christ. But then on the road to Damascus, that veil was lifted in an amazing way. And the lights went on. He is not going to stop proclaiming the gospel. Just because he finds a veil here or there, he's not going to stop proclaiming. He knows he's going to find some of those. But then there's that time when one turns to the Lord and the veil is removed. And when that veil is removed, angels rejoice. Heaven opens up. Paul rejoices because salvation comes to the heart of some. I remember on those build days when I would go there and I would be walking to the door and I didn't know who they were. Uh, there was one section of, of town or one section of my route where door-to-door salespeople, it was against the law to go to the door as door-to-door salespeople. So I would often just pretend to be lost or pretend to be myself and people would understand. And so I would walk into the door and I would have fear. I always carried uh, single-serve pizzas in my hand because uh, when you buy eight pizzas for $1.25 a box, individually wrapped, individually frozen, a minute 25 in the microwave, open one end of it so it gives it the greenhouse effect. That's the only way you'll ever get the cheese in the middle to melt. But $1.25 for a lunch is not a bad thing. And you can put them in your child's lunchbox and they can take them right to school. Easy peasy, right? So as I go to the door, I would be whispering to myself, greater is he who is in me than he who is behind that door. Greater is he who is in me than he who is behind that door. And I would not. And when they bought those pizzas, and when I talked them into a, a gallon of ice cream, I'd walk back to the truck, <laughs> doing the schwan, 
<laughs> because it's great and exciting. This is what Paul is saying. I come and I'm going to find some that are going to reject me. There's going to be some closed doors. There's going to be people who say, I don't want your pizza. I don't want your Jesus. That's going to happen. But oh boy, there's going to be that one who turns to Jesus Christ. And that's going to make it all worthwhile because there's going to be one who repents from their sins, turns to Christ, receives him as Lord and Savior, and there's going to be rejoicing that takes place. And that's going to make all of those doors slammed in our face worthwhile. That's going to make all of that all of that stuff that doesn't go well for us, it's all going to be pushed under the cart because someone has come to know Christ. Now notice what he says in verse 4. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is the God of this world. He is the father and the founder of all false religions. I remember one time I was riding in a Schwanstruck with a guy, and he brought up the topic. So for me, when they start talking about it, it's like sick him to a dog. And so he brought it up, and he, and he shared with me that he didn't uh, understand uh, how Jesus could come and die in his place and have forgiveness of sin. And, and he didn't think, he, he said, you know, I'm glad Jesus is good for you, but but I really don't want that. And the conversation continued. He didn't shut me out. The conversation continued. And I said, you know, unfortunately, where you are right now, uh, the God of this world has blinded your heart. He's blinded your eyes. And he's like, oh, don't be telling me that. That freaks me out. And so I had a little pocket Bible, and I and I opened it up, and I and I opened it to uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 4. And I says, here, read it for yourself. In your case, the God of this world has blinded your heart. Uh, you can't see the gospel. The veil is covering your eyes. And the only way that you can have hope of eternal salvation is through Jesus Christ. And for now, your eyes have been blinded by Satan. Uh, Paul knows. Paul knows that Satan's alive and well. He knows that Satan is in the business of blinding the eyes and blinding the hearts of people and and stomping their ears full so that they can't hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I think that's such a great encouragement to us. I know it's a great encouragement to me to realize that I'm not in this battle by myself, and when they reject Jesus, they're not rejecting me. It's nothing personal. It's nothing personal. Their eyes are blinded to the truth of the gospel. Satan has blinded their hearts so that they can't see. And as these detractors came in, as Paul is looking at these detractors and seeing all of these things that oppose him, he says, you know, my ministry is of Christ. These detractors come in and try to detract and kind of take away. But my ministry is of Christ, and this is what I'm doing. Now, now look at his desire in verse 5. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Paul says we do not proclaim ourselves. That's not what we're here to do. Evidently, there were some who thought Paul was proclaiming himself. They thought Paul was egocentric. But Paul was not. This was the practice of all of the false teachers. That's what they tried to do. 
as they elevated themselves. They were all about themselves. But that was not Paul. He was not about his own agenda. Paul spoke of himself as least, the least of the apostles. When, when they were talking about his apostleship, I am the least of the apostles. Uh, he is also the one who proclaimed himself to be the greatest of sinners. That he needed Christ, the mercy and the grace of Christ so much, he's the greatest of sinners. He needed that God's mercy. And so Paul never was about proclaiming himself. He was never about that. But he would submit himself to God. He desired to walk in obedience. His, his allegiance was to Christ and to Christ alone, to no one else. The Lord Jesus Christ was his Lord and his Savior, and he was a, a servant. He was just a mere servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's mindset. That's how he misbehaved. That's how he proclaimed. He proclaimed himself just to be a simple bondservant. I didn't ask for the best parking place on the whole spot because he was just a servant. Now notice verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul uses creation. You guys are way behind. Sorry about that. Paul uses a creation reference here. Uh, he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. You remember Genesis? Genesis, Genesis 1, verse 3. Uh, God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's, that's what God did. I mean, that's how God worked. God, we should do a study of Genesis sometime, shouldn't we? Probably take us six years. But we would do that, wouldn't we? Just verse by verse, go through Genesis. This is the same God. The same God that created physical light is the same God who shines spiritual light into the heart of man. This is John chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus spoke saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what Jesus said. That's Jesus speaking. I am the light of the world. He's the one who shines into the hearts. Spiritual darkness is a reality. But Jesus Christ comes and, and shines in that spiritual darkness. We, when we are born, we are born sinners. We are born into that spiritual darkness. We are born enemies of God. And we walk in that spiritual darkness. We walk under the old covenant, our eyes covered with the veil. We don't see the new covenant. We don't see the importance of Jesus Christ because we're trapped in our sins. But when we recognize Jesus Christ, when that light shines into our heart, when we're rescued from that darkness, when we're taken out of that darkness and placed into the light of Jesus Christ, we're born again. We have new life. 2 Corinthians 3.16 6, says this, but then, one turns to the Lord, and the veil has been removed. Maybe you're here today, and you've never turned to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe the veil has been over your eyes. 
Maybe the God of this world has blinded your heart to the truth of, of Jesus Christ. But maybe today you're here and, and you can kind of see through the crack of the veil and you know the bright light is out there, but you just need to step through that curtain and you don't know what to do. Jesus gave his life for us. He was perfect in every way. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus Christ came into this world to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sin. And if we would turn from our sin and recognize that we're guilty of sin and turn to Jesus Christ, we can have that forgiveness of sin. We can be forgiven for our sins. But we have to recognize that we're sinners. We need to recognize that Jesus is the only one that can save us. And only when we turn from that sin and turn to Jesus can we be saved. We've been visiting with this man. We've been talking about turning to Christ. And I think there's some difficulty there in realizing what he needs to do. It just seems so simple to, to turn to Jesus Christ, to turn from our sin and repent of our sin and turn to Christ. But that's all we've got to do. And when we do that, the veil is lifted. The veil is lifted and we are born again. Maybe you've never made that decision. And I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you and I want to double-dog dare you. Just in the quietness of your own heart this morning, we're going to stop for a moment and pray. And in the quietness of your own heart this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Jesus Christ. Make him your Lord and your Savior. And don't leave here today without knowing for sure where you're going to spend eternity. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. So there you have it. Paul's drive, Paul's detractors, and Paul's desire. But what do we take home from this? I mean, what do we apply to our Sunday afternoon? Uh, if you don't take anything else away from this, I, I think we have to be reminded that we can't lose heart. We can't lose heart. I mean, sometimes we look at the world around us and we see what's going on in the world. and There's so much... There's so much out there. And you know what the world needs? Jesus Christ. And it's an uphill battle when we think about that. We think about what difference can, can one person make? What difference can one person make? Have you guys ever heard the story about Esther? Esther. One person. One person. And she was put where she was put for such a time as this. And she stood she stood strong, and she saved the Jews. One person. You ever heard of the Apostle Paul? He was Saul before he became Paul. God transformed his life, and he turned the world upside down. One person. One person. D.L. Moody was just a kid. He was visiting with somebody, and they said, Boy, I don't know what would happen if there was one person who just willingly walked and fully submitted to God. And D.L. Moody said, that'll be me. I want that to be me. I want to be fully submitted to God. He turned Chicago upside down. D.L. Moody, one person submitted to God. When we think about revival taking place, and we think about desiring to see revival take place in our country, the place that we need to see revival is the place 
if you were to stand still and draw a circle around your feet, and then the place, the person that's inside that circle, that's where revival begins. One person. One person turning to Jesus Christ. Living for Jesus Christ. And if revival takes place within that circle, then revival can take place in other people. Because even us as individuals, God can use if we're willing to be used. But it just takes that one. It just takes that one. We've been given a ministry. We've been given a ministry. We need to realize that. The Apostle Paul was given a ministry. We have not been given the Apostle Paul's ministry. Our ministry, chances are, going to look a little bit different than the Apostle Paul's. But each of us have been given a ministry. Each of us has a mission field. Each of us has a, a place where we can help and we can work and we can serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to fall into that place and we've got to be willing to be used in our ministry. And there's that question. If you don't, who will? If you don't do it, who's going to do your job? We all serve a part. We all serve in this ministry and our our challenge is the same. Reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help people realize their need. We're not in this alone, but God can use us if we're willing to be used.